This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. Welcome to the Invested Podcast. We're really excited you guys are here. We are what are long-term we doing, Dad? investors. We're long-term. <laughs> we And we can't wait for this market to give us a bunch of companies at super cheap prices because that's what we're waiting for as long-term True. investors is for there True. to be fear. I hate to say it, but that's exactly what we, <clears throat> what we pounce on, ideally, is we stay rational. We don't get emotional. We try to make sure we understand the downside of our investments and make sure that we don't think there's much of a downside in terms of risk of loss before we buy into these things. In other words, we invest a little bit the way if you were to go to a garage sale and you were an expert at a certain kind of, uh, I don't know, maybe a, uh, what, Bowflex or something, you know? Something that people get rid of <laughs> all the time. A <laughs> Exercise <Peloton> equipment. Bike. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Peloton bikes. You, uh, you're an expert at it and you know when things are on sale because you know what they should sell for and you know that they will sell for that. And so you buy it at that low price. That That's investing. That's not speculating. And that requires that somebody's getting rid of something at the wrong price. And the beauty of the stock market is that it regularly has fund managers exiting positions at the wrong price because they have a different set of priorities than a long-term investor. Mm -hmm. Fund managers manage most of the money in the market, and their priority is literally a quarter-to-quarter basis of keeping up with your peer group, which requires, and not to mention the fact that they're being hired to invest all the time which is really hard to do and still beat the market. Um, whereas investors like Buffett and Munger, me, Danielle now, we sit mm-hmm. in cash for long periods of time and we don't have anybody telling us, hey, you got to swing, you know, you got to take a swing today. And that's what happens with the fund managers. They have to swing every day and it's impossible really in the long run to beat the market if you're there swinging There are some that manage to do it, but it's it's very few and far between and they have to really make sure that the people who put money with them understand what it is they're about to do. And I've seen, right. you know, there are some that have that have been able to be really successful at it. And and some is an important word because it's not many. <laughs> right. It's, <laughs> it's not very many. Few can mm-hmm. can hold themselves off of the pressures of the market. One of my favorite investors is Alan Meacham. Mm, that's who I was thinking who, of too. Who I I you know, I cheer him on into the sunset because he's he invested for about 20 years, uh, like with a fund that that he had started up in around 2000. And um, he just shut the fund down and is going off into the sunset just to manage his own money. Because the uh, really, I, he, he's said it's a little bit of a health issue and a family issue. But I'm reading between the lines and thinking that a lot of this is driven, these issues are driven by the emotion of 
of uh, investing people's money who want you to make it really successfully, you know, real successful investing all the time. You can never be behind the market. You can never be just sitting in cash and waiting. And Meacham is just one of the very best at doing what we do, rule one type investing. And he just quit. And I'm reminded that Warren Buffett also quit, but he mm. quit back in 1969, right? He quit. He had five partnerships that he was managing, essentially hedge funds, and he or five or six, and then he just shut them all down and said, here's your money back, or, or you can just do whatever you want, or you can put it with uh, with this friend of mine who's starting a new mutual fund, or you can buy Berkshire Hathaway stock, which is a public company, and I am buying it up, and I'm going to control that company. And then he famously made 22% a year compounded for the next 50 years or something. Just yeah, but insane. that wasn't until a number of years later. He didn't know that he was going to take Berkshire Hathaway, a failing, what did they make? Wool or something? They Textiles. were a textile mill and they failed and he made a huge mistake with that investment. <laughs> so that's my favorite part is that Berkshire Hathaway comes from a failure of Warren Buffett's. It's like <laughs> the best parable of all time that, you know, out of the ashes comes the Phoenix and out of failure comes success. So, um, yeah, he didn't, I think he didn't know at that time that that's what he was planning. He was going to go do. He went and bought Berkshire Hathaway thinking that he would make it be successful and then he couldn't. So he decided to start buying other companies. I, I was really under the impression that he told his investors in the Buffett partnerships to that that was one of their choices, you know, one of the three choices they could do. No? I, that's not my memory of it. But you know what? I'm not going to claim 100% on that one. You guys probably know. Write us. Tell us at questions uh, I, at investedpodcast.com. That's Sequoia. You know, he told them to go to Sequoia, um, which was choice. just starting at the time, or to, I think that was pretty much it, right? Go to Sequoia yeah, or, just or do, good luck. Do whatever you want. Here's your yeah. cash. <laughs> yeah, you know? here's your cash. Exactly. So Sequoia, of course, went on to be one of those few mutual funds that actually crushed the market. It, yeah, they did unbelievable. did very, very well. Yeah. Um, and again, they did it by following these very exact precepts, which they were able to follow because the people investing the money in Sequoia were former Buffett people that very Buffett true. no longer wanted to, you know, kind of have Excellent to deal with. Excellent point. That's a real right? leg up to start with those investors. So remember this, you guys out there, when you start your own hedge fund, when you start your own hedge fund, you want to be sure you're bringing people into it. You want to be careful who your investors are because you're going to want investors who won't be asking for their money back when you buy a company and it goes down 50% from where you bought it. And that's the rub, right? Is that we don't have a crystal ball. If we did, we would just buy things at the bottom and we would be so clever and it would just always make money. Uh, but we don't. So when we say uh, we want to avoid losing money as the foundation stone of rule number one. We certainly don't mean that our portfolios marked to market can't go negative mm. <laughs> because, oh, yeah, they can. Mm. They're going negative, but we don't believe we're losing money until the value of the business starts to change and go down. We we And there's a big margin of safety between the price we pay for that and the actual value. So, for example, Buffett started buying uh, Burlington Northern back in 2008, I think, roughly. Um, 
which is a big, huge railroad company. And they were getting in trouble because of the double whammy of a recession and the president of the United States, newly elected, saying, I'm going to get rid of coal. And this company moved a lot of coal. So the stock went from 120 down to $88 a share. And, um, and Buffett began acquiring positions via put options, where he was um, basically ensuring other investors that he'd be happy to buy their stock at $80 a share. And as it dropped down through 80, he began taking a bigger and bigger position. Hmm. Um, and that stock kept going all the way down to $50 a share. So in Buffett's portfolio, let's say that's the only stock he had. His portfolio, and let's say he had $1,000 in this stock, okay? So he had a $1,000 portfolio, commits it all to Burlington Northern at a series of prices. So maybe 25% of it is getting uh, coming in at 80 maybe another 25% at 70 and another 25% at 60 and another 25% at 50. And now he owns the stock at roughly, what would that be? 60, 65 bucks a share or something. Mm, yeah. Ballpark, okay. right? So the average price. So he's buying as it goes down, but look at his portfolio. When that thing gets to 50, he owns it at 65. So his portfolio is down $15 a share. Mm, true. Uh, that's a lot. At yeah. 50, that'd be like a 25% negative return on his portfolio mark to market. And if you're an investor in that company, in, in Buffett, and you don't know how this game works, you would be appalled, especially if the market's going up while they, while you're doing that, right? Oh, the whole market's going up and you're, you're losing money. I've now down 25%. That can shock people and, and, and cause them to make a mistake, which would be to sell their position at down 25%. They'll have taken their 100,000, let's say it's much bigger than a $1,000 position. They've taken their 100, I guess they've taken their $1,000 and now they're getting back $750. They've lost $250 in this investment, right? And nine months later, that stock was at 100, nine months later. So if you just understood what was happening, that the value of the business was far higher than this $65 average price, then you would have made $35 a share on a $65 investment, which is about a 40% return, right? For almost 50% return. So one group of people who sort of freak out, lose 25%, nine months later, the group that stayed in made almost 50%. That's a huge swing in a portfolio. And that's what happens in our portfolios. That's what you have to be emotionally prepared to handle and the key to that, here, I'm just driveling along. I hope you don't mind. But the key to that is staying rational. So you would have to know, either you have a huge amount of faith, which is almost possible for people, or you know already that Burlington Northern is worth 120 bucks a share easily, that this is a, a, a valley in a long road, <clears throat> and it'll certainly come back up again. Um, That's but, true of the investor what do you call it? The the fund manager. That's true of the fund manager. But the person investing in the fund would not have that kind of knowledge. That's the whole point of putting their money with somebody Especially else. Especially because they, they may so, not even know that it's Burlington Northern. Totally. So <sighs> I think in that situation, actually, they kind of do have to develop faith and just go, you well, do. you know, this might be a mistake. And I trust this person to 
get out of it at the right time when they figure it out and put it in something else or wait it out for it to go up again. One thing I was, I just looked through Alan Meacham's letters. Um, I sent them out last week to my, um, my invested practice newsletter. Actually, I was just reading them and he wrote very few investors talk. And by the way, we know that we're talking about checklists today, guys. We haven't forgotten. We're not confused. We're just, <laughs> dad's laughing. We, we just, just do what we do. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so I was just looking at his letters, which are so well written about value investing in general. But one thing that he did that very few investors do is he was willing to talk about the positions that he owned while he owned them. And most investors don't because they don't really want to, frankly, like deal with it. And they don't want to be have confirmation bias and be attached to stuff that they've defended in the past. But I was really I was just really struck by how he um, he had this one investment that went down and he told his investors it went down. He told them why he thought that it would go back up. And the next letter was I have closed my position in that particular company because I got X, Y, and Z wrong and it wasn't going to end up working out. And he was just super straightforward about it. It wasn't emotional. It wasn't like, oh, I've, you know, ruined things. It was like, that's what happened. It's a paragraph. Let's move on. And he, um, I looked at, you know, we have the benefit of hindsight. These letters are a number of years old, the ones that are on the internet. And so I looked up that particular company and it's just gone down and down and down. And it's now half of where it was when he sold it. Yep. So he was right in the end <laughs> with selling it. And I just really appreciated that. And I was reflecting on how his investors, and by the way, the name of his fund is Arlington Value Capital, if you want to look it up. His investors had the confidence in him, frankly, because he was right so much of the time and his returns were hundreds of percent. So they trusted him because of that, but also because he was willing to just say what was going on. He wasn't trying to sugarcoat it or hide anything. He just gave the truth. And that's really, really nice when you have your money with somebody to know that you're getting the truth. Absolutely. And just <clears throat> to put a point on it, his um, Arlington value, <clears throat> excuse me, his Ranger fund returned 37.9% since 2008 when it was formed. together or each year? Annually. In- annually. Yeah. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. That is unbelievable. And Arlington value did 18.36 over 11 and a half years, which includes the big, huge drop mm. in 2008. Mm. So that's stunning. Uh you compare those to the S&P 500, I, I promise you he's somewhere between t- 10 and ten and 30% higher than the S&P on this. Um, and and there's, a, there's a website called Macro Ops. I don't know anything about it, but they do – he did a nice job of listing – this guy's name is um, Brandon Baylow – of listing the five things that he gathered from those letters. And I just thought I'd read them to you real quick. Uh, you'll have heard these before in some form on this podcast about a billion times, but I'm going to say it anyway. Number one, less information is better, not more. Avoid noise. Hmm. In other words, just look at the key things you need to look at. Selling great businesses is almost always a mistake. Inactivity is the key to success. Learn to do nothing. Focus on the long term and play for keeps. And finally, concentration, not diversification, is vital to outperformance. 
So there we go. Those are the basic rules or some of the basic rules for a rule one style investor. Mm -hmm. And those are the investors, you guys, if you want to know how to outperform the market, that's the people who do it. Now, there are some others. I mean, we, we, we've talked about Renaissance here, which is Jim Simons and, uh, and, uh, and Bob Merritt. And I think it's, is it Merritt? I don't know. Bob, I don't somebody. know. Probably doing that wrong. But anyway, Jim, Bob. <laughs> Those guys kind of compounded it. I think a mind-boggling seventy-five percent, roughly, per year. Jeez. Insane numbers. <laughs> but they are not rule one investors. They are completely unconcerned with the quality of the businesses that they buy into. They they are completely the epitome of quantitative analysis. That is, they're just looking at arbit arbitrage opportunities when. It snows in Paris, then they do something, you know, because they found uh, yeah. something that says the market moves a certain way. Yeah. I mean, they're geniuses. There's 300 of them, and they ain't me, and they're not you, and forget it. You're not going to do that. Oh, I, I mean, more power oh. to them. I and you want to hear a that. really crazy thing? Is what? that Jeff Bezos was one of them. He worked at Renaissance? Yeah. Like back in he, the day? Back in the day. And, and it was... I, think it's I didn't Bob know Mer that. I'm saying I'm saying this guy's name wrong. I'm re really sorry if I'm messing it up. But hit the guy that was really the guy running things, Bob. I want to say Merrick, but that's probably wrong. And he Bezos brought this idea to him that hey, look, the, Bob had said the internet is going to be a place where, did where you people find this out. This story. Um, where was this in uh, Jim Simon's book? I think. Um, uh which the I haven't who read beat yet. The market, I think. Yes. So this it, is so amazing. He take Merritt is Bob is talking about this idea that the internet someday is going to be a place. This is 1990s, okay? The internet's going to be someday a place where people buy things online, and then they tell everyone in the world what they think about the things. They rate them, mm -hmm. and that's going to change commerce forever. And Bezos said, I love this idea, and I would like your permission to take this and run with it. If you guys are good with it, I'm going to leave here. I'm going to go start up a company, and I am going to put this into, into gear. And they told him, hey, go to it, man. And he says, do you guys want to own some of it? He said, no, no, just all you. Go ahead. And that was the beginning of Amazon, which is like, what? what? That's in the book? <laughs> yeah. I got to go Isn't look that, that cool? up. Yeah, That's check crazy. it out. crazy. Yeah, I mean that was that was like oh well that helps explain how Bezos figures this all out because he's a genius of course coming from rocket science and these guys are all rocket scientists that's that's the truth they're all they're all Jim Simons is a literal rocket scientist one cool. of the smartest math guys on the planet cool anyway just a, a little more of a side and one more aside can I, I do one more aside I wonder if he signed up to be a beta tester of Starlink because I'm debating if I should do that. What? That was a rocket scientist joke. No? Oh, my God. <laughs> get it. I'm such not a rocket scientist, you guys. I don't even get rocket scientist jokes. I, that was, I, I, it was actually an Elon Musk joke. Elon Musk is trying to launch a satellite network that will provide internet everywhere across the globe, no matter where you are at all times. Whoa. And it's called Starlink. And... You can apparently sign up to be a beta tester of it whenever they launch it. Oh um, my gosh, that'd be so cool. I suspect you have to give something in return to the great overlord of Starlink, which give is your data. Your data. Exactly. Give your data. Exactly. Like, oh, okay.
Um, okay, so again, right. we want to talk about the checklist. We are fully in the middle of the management part of the checklist. It's very exciting. We're very into it. We're not trying to avoid it. But we've got one other little item of business that I think is important to put out there um, on this episode before it gets too old in the news. So, Dad, you wanted to... Give yeah, this info. is in the form of a public service announcement about a kid. Uh, this was out in Forbes on uh, June 17th. So this is a kid, 20-year-old, who is trading with a web a, a brokerage site called Robinhood, um, which is where a lot of young people have gone to trade because it was the first website that let you trade for free. Well, and, and it's uh, an app. It's not a website. So it's like you're right. it's an app. easier it's to phone. use. Yeah. Yep. And so this kid does uh, a, an options trade that he doesn't fully understand called a bull put spread. And the bull put spread structure is that you are obligated, if, if the stock price drops aggressively, you will find yourself obligated to buy that stock at a set price. And, it, and, and you hedge that by owning a right to sell that stock at a slightly lower price. And that difference between the price you have to buy and the price that you have a right to sell is called the spread. And it's usually somewhere between five, 10 bucks, 20 bucks, something like that. So per you can end share. up- Per yeah, share. Yeah, per share. And you can end up with $1,000. You could um, very easily have something like, I don't know, at a, at a $10 spread, you could have um, 100 shares with $1,000, right? So you could have 100 shares. So uh, and and it could be that you're doing something in a stock that costs oh $2,000 a share. So you could be obligated for $200,000. Right? You don't have any money. But the idea got... behind that behind the bull put spread right is that you are actually only obligated for that spread amount. Is that right? Right. right. For the 100 shares on the spread amount of because let's say you've hedged 10 it. Bucks. Right, you've hedged it. Okay. Now, what happened with this kid? But technically, you're saying technically, what happens is that you are kind of on the hook for this, whatever it could be, many many hundreds of thousands, depending on how much money you're putting into it. But the reality of it with the buying and selling is that you're you've set it up so that you're only at risk for that spread amount. Correct. Right. Just making sure right. we, we don't okay. we don't talk about all this on 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 the show here, but. Uh, just for this one thing. Um, yeah, we're not getting into the, off, the methods of options here, but it no. just was something that seemed important enough to to mention. It is what this kid died of was an illusion, which is wait, really you haven't even tragic. said that that he died. So what happened? Oh, sorry, he committed suicide oh, because on Friday night um, his trade went 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 bad over the course of the trade, and the stock price fell to where he was obligated to buy the stock, all right? But it didn't fall far enough to where the hedge covered the low end of his obligation. In other words, if there was a $10 spread, the stock price came down maybe halfway through it, okay. all right? And the impact of that was that he woke up Saturday morning and his Robin Hood brokerage account said, you owe us $730,000 because mm. that was the negative position. He had to buy $730,000 worth of stock. What he didn't realize was that the Robin Hood brokerage account would show on Monday at the open that his account had been cleared by selling the stock. 
at that stock price. So he would have lost, in this case, maybe he would have lost $1,000 or $500, okay? He didn't know that. It only showed one side of the trade. It didn't show that the equity was going, that the stock shares were going to be in his possession, which his broker knew, and his broker would immediately sell those shares and cover the 730000 except for just a small piece of the spread. He didn't so know what, that. He didn't know enough about it. What caused that discrepancy? Was it the timing of the market open it's, and closed? It's, the, it's an aber, aberration of an options trade. And in effect, what happens is the option trade settles on Saturday. The market's not open, oh, so they can't sell the stock. Oh, it settles when the market is closed. Yes. Oh. So it settles when the market's closed and the market doesn't isn't open, so he can't sell the stock. So his brokerage account hasn't yet acquired the stock, but it would. Hmm. Okay, and and so it's simply a a matter of a of a moment in time where one part of the trade was visible, but the other part wasn't, and wouldn't yeah. be visible until Monday morning. Yeah. And on Monday morning, had he decided to just sit there and look at it, Monday morning the thing would have changed completely, and he'd been out about five hundred bucks. Instead, it panicked him, and he didn't know, and didn't understand, and didn't know who he could talk to to find out because it's a weekend, the brokers aren't open. And he just lost it and, and he committed suicide, which is horrible. And they know and that that's actually what happened. That this yeah, well, at least that's what Forbes reports. And okay. we tested it to find out if, in fact, that's what would happen on another website. I won't mention it, but let's just assume, everybody, if you try to do some of this kind of stuff, that all of the brokerage sites may have that aberration simply by the way this account gets cleared. Um, there's a spread of time when the market's not open where your account may show a big negative balance. We did it on a paper trade. And indeed, our account showed a $650,000 negative balance today. Wow. Which is mm -hmm. so scary if you don't know what you're, you're looking at right there. Yeah, because it's from what you're saying, it's not actually an aberration. It's actually the correct way it should go. If the trade settles on a Saturday and part of the trade is to uh, sell the stock on Monday morning, that's what's supposed to happen, it sounds like. Yeah, but the stock should show up in your equity account. I just think that the that something about the way these brokers manage it, we're still digging into what's going on. And Robinhood is, you know, as a website has said, we've got to change this. We we didn't even think about this. Hmm. Um, you know, you do own the stock. I mean, you yeah. you have an obligation to buy it and you bought it. Yeah. Yeah. And now you're seven hundred and thirty thousand in the hole. And of course, your broker won't let you do that. <laughs> you don't have $730,000. they are not going to let you buy $730,000 worth of stock on a loan. They're not, not a chance, right? So there has to be an offset. And the offset is the stock is sitting in the account. But it doesn't show up or he didn't look in the right place or something. We're, we're still mm -hmm. digging to find out. Mm -hmm. um, we've I've been doing this kind of trade for many years and never – had this happened to me because I always exit the trades before they get into the into the spread. We we I just don't like risk, so we're going to exit that thing early. I've never been there over the weekend when something like this happened, and I didn't realize the brokers would have this kind of dumb accounting system that didn't tell you you were okay. Wow. So anyway, that's a uh, just a warning for everybody. First off, if you don't know what you're doing with options, please don't do them because 99% yeah. of people who trade options lose their money. That. Yeah. Yeah, that's the first step. And then if you are doing it, 
don't panic over a weekend if you've done a, 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 a hedge trade. Okay, done with that. Wait until Monday at 11 a.m. to panic. And now I think, honestly, we've gone so deep in today's episode without getting to management. <laughs> Maybe we should just save it for next time. <laughs> I think we should. I mean, last time we talked about free cash flow and owner earnings, both both of them being at 75% of, of earnings. And it's pretty arbitrary. I mean, you could you could... Um, you could look at this and say, well, it's 50%, but it's still a great company and it's throwing off plenty of cash for me. Um, it's just a red flag if it's not uh, near near what earnings are. And we'll come back and we'll talk about that next week. I think I think it deserves a little bit more of a of a of a lick than just a second there. And then we we also wanna wanna kind of think about what the CEO is doing for himself or herself. What how socially just are they, I'll say. How fair is the CEO being relative to their own pay and what's going on in that company? So those are another couple of things we want to talk about next week. You good oh, with that? Interesting. Yeah. Sounds good. Okay. okay. Thanks, right, everybody. Well, Bye. Yeah, until then, time to go play. See ya. Hi, guys. Thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information or to listen to additional episodes, visit our website at investedpodcast.com and sign up for my virtual workshop right there. Spots are definitely limited for this event. I'm not kidding. They really are. They sell out very quickly. So everything discussed on this podcast, by the way, is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And I'm really important. It's not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your financial advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So remember that. You're on your own here. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only. And I really hope you enjoyed it.